Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm David Ross, and welcome to episode nine of the Sun's new podcast, Israel's War on Terror. More details are emerging about the sexual violence perpetrated by Hamas during its October 7 massacre and how the terrorists use rape as a weapon of war. There's also growing anger over the lack of condemnation of sex crimes against Israelis by aid groups and UN organizations. Aviva Klompas served as the director of speechwriting for Israel's permanent mission to the United Nations. She's emerged as a leading voice on the conflict and a staunch defender of women's rights. Aviva says the UN's conduct on the issue is shameful. I think the best way to describe it is probably the theater of the absurd. It's no secret that the UN has a enormous anti-Israel bias, and you see this manifest really in every committee and every arm of the United Nations. And the bias really is overt, and it's a product of an institution that was well-meaning at its founding, but in the 1960s, you see waves of decolonization sweep across the Middle East and North Africa. Country after country gains its freedom and goes on to join the United Nations, and the rule at the United Nations is one country, one vote. So every country in the world, no matter how large, how small, how rich, how poor, how democratic, or how tyrannical, gets a vote at the United Nations. And sadly, there are many more nations in the world that are not democracies. And we see this manifest in many ways at the UN, and one of which is the anti-Israel bias. How surprised are you at the level of that bias that it's reared its head since the October 7th terror massacre on southern Israel? A series of acts that were perpetrated on civilians in kibbutzim, etc. How shocked have you been by the response of the UN and associated organizations? I don't think we quite understand the magnitude of the times that we're living in. What happened on October 7th defies belief. It was the single largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. And aside from the enormous numbers, 1,200 people murdered, 240 people taken hostage, what we're learning about increasingly is the sheer brutality and just the absolute cruelty of what Hamas perpetrated predominantly against civilians. They did attack military bases, but they also attacked people in their homes at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning in quiet, peaceful kibbutzim, which are little farming communities near Gaza. So if you're intentionally attacking kibbutzim and homes at 6 a.m., the intent is to terrorize and to brutalize civilians. That's first of all. And the United Nations exists to protect civilians from these types of harms. The second thing is that Hamas could not be clearer about its intention. First of all, in its founding charter, which explicitly states that the goal is to eliminate Israel. And second, by very clearly documenting their crimes on October 7th, they wore the GoPros, they went live on social media platforms to share what they were doing. So while Hamas is absolutely crystal clear 
in its crimes, the response from the international community has been shameful or silence, which is equally shameful. And the magnitude of what we're experiencing means that this is going to be spoken about and talked about for decades, if not centuries to come. And people are going to ask us, our children and our grandchildren are going to ask us how the world responded. And they're going to ask, did the United Nations and other international organizations and human rights groups, did they rise to the challenge? Did they denounce the terrorists? Did they denounce the atrocities? And they, did they demand the release of the hostages? And we're going to have to tell them the truth, which is no. And worse than that, they're going to ask us, well, did ordinary people go out in the streets to denounce terrorism and to demand the release of the hostages? And we're going to have to tell them some did, but a far greater number of people went out into the streets in support of the terrorists. Since October the 7th, there has been a growing wealth in testimony of sexual violence by Hamas terrorists using rape as a weapon of war. How outraged are you by the lack of acknowledgement of these crimes and, in turn, the lack of condemnation? I'm beyond outraged. I was at the United Nations on Monday this week where a session was held about the rape and sexual violence perpetrated by Hamas on October 7th. And you have eyewitness accounts, you have forensic evidence, you have captured Hamas terrorists who actually admit that their instructions were to go and to rape women and children. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence. And what do we hear from the United Nations? Something, something context, something, something investigation. You hear this from UN Women. There was a statement today from UNICEF that didn't even mention Hamas. And we all know the truth, that if this was any other people, any other nationality, any other religious group, the condemnations would have been swift and explicit. And to the outside world looking in, there's a huge importance to organizations like the UN in calling out and condemning Hamas for this kind of crime because it's hard enough for people to get believed in the first place. And when an official body with such influence doesn't provide an acknowledgement, then it makes this almost impossible. Absolutely. It's even worse. The United Nations doesn't even recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization. And it's not like Hamas appeared on the scene on October 7th. It took over the Gaza Strip. Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. And uh, Hamas took over two years later and have spent the past 15 years growing it into this terror state. And in that time, they have sent suicide bombers into Israeli cities. They've sent incendiary balloons, which have caused all sorts of fires and damage in southern Israel. They have fired tens of thousands of rockets. They have stolen international aid dollars and used it to build their terror empire. And all the while, the United Nations and other international institutions have watched, and worse, sent money, sent resources, as they know what's been going on. So it's just absolutely outrageous that now they turn and they point fingers at Israel. A lot of casual observers won't really comprehend how Hamas has managed to use organizations like the UN and aid agencies to its own advantage. Tell us a little bit about that tactic and what the implications are. Hamas leaders have said in their own wor words that it is not their responsibility to look after the civilians of Gaza, that that is the job of the United Nations. And meanwhile, here's Hamas stealing all this aid money, stealing all these resources, these humanitarian aids that are going into Gaza. 
going and building terror headquarters under hospitals, storing rockets inside of UN schools, inside of UNRWA schools, firing rockets from behind civilian infrastructure. It's crime upon crime upon crime. And for the UN to say that they didn't know is outrageous. It's so obvious. There is a mountain of evidence. And at the same time, the UN is holding Israel to a bizarre double standard and calling out actions of the IDF as if it is deliberately targeting civilians when the truth is that the IDF does what it can to avoid civilian casualties, but civilians are used as human shield. I would say it's more than a double standard. It's a triple standard at the UN. You have one standard for democracies, one standard for dictatorships, and a third impossible standard for the state of Israel, which is a no-win situation. It's exactly as you said. Hamas is committing a double war crime. It is building this terror operation inside the densely populated neighborhoods of Gaza. It is indiscriminately targeting Israeli civilians every single time it launches an attack. And as we saw on October 7th, the vast majority of the casualties were civilians. And they do this all while hiding behind the Palestinian people, which creates an impossible situation for Israel because they have a duty and obligation like any state to defend their civilians, to prevent another atrocity like October 7th from ever happening again, to bring security to the country. There have been 11,500 rockets fired out of Gaza since October 7th. It's, an, it's astounding that a country has to live like this, and it's time to put an end to the terror once and for all. And Hamas cynically hides behind the Palestinian people, making it, as I said, an impossible choice for Israel that has to go in and end this threat. But they have a line of Palestinian civilians standing in their way. I'll also say that the estimate is that about 2,000 of those rockets of the 11,500 that have been fired by terrorists from Gaza have misfired and fallen short inside of Gaza. So Hamas is also killing their own people. What do we know now about the experience of hostages taken captive by Hamas that we didn't know some weeks ago? What is the latest information that, that you have? I think we were all fearful and remain fearful because there's still 138 people being held hostage by Hamas. But given that over 100 people have now been returned to Israel, we have a clear sense of what is being endured. And we have to keep in mind that these were the people Hamas was willing to return, meaning presumably the ones who are in the quote unquote best condition. There's accounts of starvation. There was a, a Thai national who said he had to eat. He wet to toilet paper to eat in order so that he wouldn't starve. You have incidents of physical abuse. You have children who were burned on the leg uh, so that they would be recognizable if they tried to run away. You have incidents of a little boy being held in solitary confinement for 16 days. A small boy, can you imagine what that's done to his mental health? He was also forced, along with other children, to watch videos of the atrocities of the October 7th attacks. And when they cried, they were... They had guns held to their heads and they were threatened. And it's account after account. There's also, there was testimony today that came out in Israel that at least 10 of the people released were sexually assaulted. And has the UN said anything at all? Well, Hamas, well, that was Freudian. The United Nations statements have been, if they have existed, have been less than worthless. There was a statement today put out by UNICEF that outrage over 
sexual violence committed on October 7th, but it's not attributed to anybody. They don't say the word Hamas. It's taken two months for UN women to muster the ability to, again, give an inadequate statement. And it's absolutely feeble and shameful the way that the world has responded to the crimes committed against Israeli women. And could the same be applied to the Me Too movement that came out in force to support women in, in this kind of, of situation? There has been a deafening silence, according to many critics. Absolutely. I think the rule of thumb at this moment is Me Too, unless you're a Jew, in which case we're going to have to look at the context and explain to me what exactly is the context that justifies the rape and sexual violence committed against children and women. So what is the answer then when organizations like the United Nations don't feel the need to condemn atrocities? What should happen? First of all, we have to hold them to account. We can't let them off the hook so easily. There should be outrage going to each of our governments, to our respective governments, and those governments should be demanding action from the United Nations. Uh, the same is true of the human rights organizations. Individuals should not be funding the organizations that have not been clear and unequivocal in their condemnation of Hamas. And I think in the international arena, there's also quite a lot of work to do. First of all, there's 22 Arab states that are routinely now condemning Israel, but I don't see those states opening their borders to Palestinian refugees. This war would be over a lot sooner if those Arab countries would open their borders, accept innocent Palestinian civilians so that they can no longer be used as human shields, and the IDF can go and complete its mission, which is to rescue the hostages and to destroy Hamas's ability to wage war. Second of all, when it comes to Qatar and Turkey, they are allowing Hamas leaders to live like kings within their borders. That's unacceptable. They need to have economic pressure, diplomatic, political pressure uh, to force them to expel those Hamas leaders and to place pressure on Hamas to release all of the remaining hostages. What is the... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The agenda then of countries like Qatar, because they're obviously seeking some kind of, of credit in terms of their effectiveness at negotiating either a humanitarian pause or the release of some hostages. What is at play there, do you think? Oh, Qatar is absolutely two-faced in what it's doing. So first of all, it's been sending money to Hamas for years. Second of all, as I said, it's been providing a shelter and safe harbor for Hamas leaders. And at the same time, it places itself as the negotiator on behalf of Hamas to, to negotiate the release of hostages. And ultimately, Qatar cares about its public appearance, about its reputation in the international arena. The Doha Forum is taking place next week, and any global leader with any sense of morality, any shred of morality, should not be attending. And there should be global outrage against Qatar for the crimes that it has enabled. So how do you see the next weeks and months play out as the IDF continues its mission? Clearly, it requires a degree 
of international support from its most fervent allies. But as war continues, how concerned are you that that support ebbs away? I think what we need to understand is that Hamas has been building a terror state since 2007. And a terror state built over the course of 15 years can't be undone overnight, particularly if an army like the IDF is doing maximal efforts in order to prevent harm to innocent Palestinian civilians. To be able to uproot Hamas and to rescue the hostages is going to take time, and it's going to have to be a slow, very intentional effort. And we need to support them in this because the goal of peace-loving people shouldn't just be to end the fighting between Israel and uh, in Gaza right now. It should be to end the fighting of Israel in Gaza forever. And that is only possible by removing Hamas, removing the threat that Hamas presents to the people of Israel and the absolute brutality and tyranny that they impose on the Palestinian people of Gaza. And once Hamas is wiped out, what should happen then in terms of security in Gaza? I think the, we have to learn from what's happening in the West Bank. So there have been some people that have proposed that the Palestinian Authority take over, but we've seen that that's hardly a peaceful situation of the Palestinian Authority's control in the West Bank. And ultimately, the goal has to be what's going to bring maximum security for Israel, and at the same time, maximum opportunity for the Palestinian people who have had for the last 15 years, no free speech, no free p press, no freedom of mobility, no freedom of expression. There's an opportunity here to really create a new situation, a new reality for the 2 million plus people who are living in Gaza. And so the goal has to be about what's going to bring maximum efforts for them. So perhaps it's an international coalition, perhaps it's a project of the Abraham Accords. I think we have to be uh, inventive about what the situation is going to look like and not default to simple answers. And how angered are you by the marches that have been taking place in many cities around the world in support of Hamas, even though maybe the protesters aren't directly, in some cases, phrasing Hamas's terror atrocities? There is a disguised support or, in some cases, not so disguised. I'm outraged by it. And as I said, I think one day in the future, our children and grandchildren are going to ask if there were clear and unequivocal voices that condemned Hamas in this moment, both for the atrocities that it perpetrated on October 7th and for the ensuing absolute calamity and horrors that it has uh, unleashed both on Palestinian people and Israeli people for a decade and a half. And the truth is, when you go to these protests, when you look at the videos of them, you don't see a single sign that condemns Hamas, but you see plenty of signs and plenty of chants that condemn Israel. And worse than that, October 7th opened the floodgates of Jew hatred worldwide, and you're seeing rabid anti-Semitism inside of these protests. So how do you combat these narratives from an educational point of view? Well, I think that's really where we've fallen down, is that we have failed to educate an entire generation, that they have been fed and bought into very simple narratives, narratives about David and Goliath, where it appears as if Israel is strong and the Palestinians are weak, therefore Israel must be the oppressor and Israel must be the aggressor. It's simply not the case. You need to look at the actual historical truths. You have to look at the fact that Israel has offered peace agreements. You have to look at the fact that Hamas has a charter. That's entire goal is to wipe out Israel. There is no negotiating or making peace with a terror organization that 
exists in order to annihilate Israel. And so I think we have failed to convey those messages. And I also think that people have fallen into the trap. We see what I call the weaponization of language. They take language from the human rights discourse where it once had legal meaning and weight, and they weaponize that language and use it to batter Israel. And it's simply falsehoods and uh, sensationalist use of terms that are inaccurate and diminish the actual people who suffered from human rights crimes. What sense do you think there is that there needs to be a de-radicalization of attitudes in Gaza because whilst Hamas has been a tyrannical regime since Israel pulled out of the enclave, clearly there is a degree of support for Hamas, albeit some of it provoked by violence and fear. But aside from that, there has to have been some support for Hamas to have survived in the way that it has. You're absolutely right. And it's not just inside of Gaza. We can also see this in the West Bank, where the Palestinian Authority is the governing authority. And this is the result of an entire system, an entire culture that is teaching generation after generation of Palestinian children that Jews are evil and that they need to grow up to be martyrs to slaughter the Jews. You see this in the textbooks that children are being taught. You see this in the sports tournaments that are named after quote unquote martyrs. You see this in the symbols all over when you walk through Palestinian towns where there's celebrations and memorials to the martyrs. It's a culture that celebrates death. And that is exactly right. You're right that that's not something that you can hope to eliminate overnight. There is a military objective to remove the Hamas war machine and at the same time, an international effort is required to help to educate the next generation of Palestinian children to want coexistence, to want to have peace with the Israeli people. And when you see footage of child soldiers reenacting atrocities, and when you see evidence of educational attempts to demonize Israel through children's classes, some of which are alleged to be UNRWA organized classes and funding that has gone from the people for infrastructure to schools of death cult, for want of a better expression. How much more difficult is that de-radicalization? What I think every government needs to undertake is an ethical audit. If we understand, and it's so obvious, it's overt because it's in the television stations and it's in the newspapers and it's in, as you said, the school plays, that there's this culture that celebrates death. There's a culture that celebrates the murder of Jews. We have to look at what the funding sources are. And if it's coming from UNRWA, or if it's coming from human rights organizations, or if it's coming from other UN institutions, they're all funded by governments. And those governments need to take a hard look at what they're funding, and they need to freeze them. We just saw France this week funding uh, freeze the funding of one of the Hamas leaders, which is incredibly important. Cutting off the money at the source will cut off their ability to be able to pass this legacy on and on to future generations. Aviva, how optimistic are you for the future with Hamas currently still not wiped out several weeks on from the October 7th massacre and with the world seemingly still divided on how they view the region and the impacting elements of the conflict, how confident are you that we will at some point reach peace? 
I'm disappointed when I look at how the world is responding to what's going on. There's no question about that. But I'm absolutely certain that Israel will emerge victorious because I'll tell you why. There is no other choice. There is no other place for the 7 million Jews who call Israel home to go to. This is their home. And the country is united in the understanding that October 7th was the last straw, that there was the military efforts to stop Hamas. There were economic efforts to stop Hamas, Gazans. There were 20,000 work permits that Gazans had before October 7th. And it's all to no avail. And ultimately, to understand that you have a jihadi death cult living at your doorstep, that there is no alternative but to go and to root them out. And something, a terrorist state built over the course of more than 15 years, will not be undone overnight. And the Israeli people understand that. And they have the patience and determination to see this through. And if there's one thing that Jewish history tells us is that if we're looking to the rest of the world for approval or support, we'll be waiting forever. And we've learned that lesson time and time again. And fortunately, we now live in a world where we have a Jewish state, a state that has the ability to protect the Jewish people and to protect the citizens of Israel. And they're going to see it through. The people of Israel appear to be united in the desire to rid itself of Hamas as its next door neighbors. What about after that? Because prior to this war, Israel appeared to be pretty divided in terms of its political outlook and the feelings of its citizens towards the government. How do you see things unfolding there? I think Israel's enemies thought that Israel was much much weaker than it actually is because it saw the divisive nature that took place in Israeli society prior to October 7th with the issue of judicial reform and concerns that much of the Israeli public had with the Israeli government. And that, by the way, is a sign of a vibrant democracy. People say that they can't disagree with Israel. Well, I always say half of the Israeli people seem to d- disagree with the government of Israel. So there's certainly not an issue of disagreement in policy or action or leadership. The question is, is when you deny Israel's right to defend itself, normally the people that deny Israel that right are the same people who believe that Israel has no right to exist. And we have to discount their thinking because Israel has every right and legitimacy to exist. And as with previous conflicts, there's often talk that there will be an influx of Jewish people from around the world seeking to come to live in in their ancestral homeland. What is your sense of the movement of Jewish people from around the world and their their intentions? Uh, once this has, has been taken care of. We saw when the war broke out, you saw hundreds of thousands of Israelis that were all over the world return home and to be able to join their reserve units to help wage this war. You're seeing inside of Israel, I just read today, that you have these high recruitment numbers, particularly of female soldiers who want to join intelligence and combat units. So the response of the Israeli people is overwhelming in an understanding of the need to defeat this enemy. And I think that they have the absolute support of much of the Jewish world that similarly understands what the stakes are here and understands that enough is enough. It's not clear to me whether this is going to cause a surge in immigration of Jewish people, but I certainly think when it comes to the hearts and support of the Jewish people, it's overwhelmingly with the state of Israel. Aviva Klompas there. That brings an end to this week's chapter of Israel's War on Terror. You can discover more episodes wherever you typically get your podcasts. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer, please let us know in the comments and we'll do our best to take them on in the coming weeks. 
Thanks for listening. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.